Welcome back to another series of the Make Life Work podcast, season six, if you're counting. I am your host, Cy Jobling, side project addict with far too many years to count from working in tech. I'm also a software engineering manager, community advocate, and podcast junkie. So this is the ideal platform for me to share topics important to me. This time on the podcast, I've returned to interview more people from around the tech scene about some of their recent projects, how they fit them around lockdown life, along with their day jobs. By diving into their specific projects, we hope to uncover some of the tips and tricks they use to make them happen, so you lovely listeners can try them out yourself. This week, I've invited along Chris Hellman, Principal Program Manager for Browser Tools at Microsoft, presenter and coding evangelist. Chris and I go quite a long way back to the early days of Web 2.0, when Twitter was available on IRC and before any celebrities joined, and he's always inspired me with his passion for giving back to the community. Chris recently released an online course about optimising your remote development environment, so I thought I'd invite him along to talk about what the inspiration was, how he went about making it, and any future plans. Time to get into it. This is Making Skillshare Content with Chris Hellman. So welcome along, Chris Hellman. Thanks for joining me. Hey, welcome. It's good to see you back. We go way back together, don't we? <laughs> we have a long history together, I think, don't we? Um, yeah. I think it was about 2007 when we started chatting on the Twitter, and it went from there. Yeah. And yeah, and you managed to get me into Yahoo, which was probably my career highlight. And you uh, you came in every morning from rugby, go to London and back, and I always <laughs> thought that was kind of odd but uh, you Bonkers. you hung in you hung in there for quite a while i was quite impressed then again like traveling one hour to the outside into london is like traveling the same as one hour in london so exactly. you could be in the same neighborhood it takes the same time to come in but if there's any disruption exactly and that's how i justified it i spent more time just on a fast train than you guys did on a slow train so mm-hmm. yeah but yeah we go back to then um and then you've done all sorts since then so i, I maybe you want to give everyone a bit of a heads up as to what your career has been like for the last 10 years guess oh good we don't do the last 10 years because it's been like this roller coaster ride of all kinds <laughs> of limit things it, yeah yeah i mean uh, i mean the the big breakthrough for me to a degree was when i went uh when I moved to England and I worked for an agency there to do like a lot of government work like Hammersmith and Fulham Council, uh, North Yorkshire Council, these kind of things, and visitbritain.com, the big tourism portal, and also McDonald's Coded UK, these kind of things. So once you had these on your on your plate, it was much easier to go further. So then I went to Yahoo UK and when uh, uh, Yahoo UK actually folded, I started working at Mozilla and I was the lead evangelist there, the principal evangelist. And then when uh, Firefox OS came around, I was on that, and then Microsoft asked me to help them with the rollout of the new browser because they wanted to kill Internet Explorer, which we now finally are very close to, and uh, the uh, that's where I wanted to go. So I basically now have been six years in Microsoft, and I was uh, six and a half years, and I was completely shocked by seeing that the other day because it, it flew past. So now I'm principal program manager for developer tools inside uh, Microsoft, which means the developer tools inside the Edge browser and the interaction with Visual Studio Code. And the fun thing is, like coming from an engineering background and going into the uh, uh, going into the evangelism advocacy role, and now going back into program management is really really interesting because. I now have like engineering teams, I have program managers to work with, and I have a docs team, I've got all the things to deal with. 
And in the level that I'm in, I'm asked to do a lot of stuff for the next five to 10 year thinking rather than just like releasing something day to day, which is a, a different thinking for me because I still want to do the things and, and be in the, in, the, uh, in the day-to-day delivery. But it's great to actually get that kind of trust because that's something you don't hear often that like, I mean, we all get the stupid question, where do you see yourself in five years? But getting the mandate to actually plan for the next five years what the company should be doing and knowing that you will be supported during that time is kind of humbling. It's kind of impressive. And you, you must find that very difficult because I've been in a similar boat recently, like looking at the delivery plan for the next year, give or take. And we all know those plans never stick for more than six months, right? So how have you found that shift into forward planning, but being realistic about what you can do? I think there's two things to it. There's like the, uh, the the blue sky thinking vision document kind of stuff where you're actually thinking where want, where do we want to go? And I think it's very important there to uh, to not get bogged down on delivery and like knowing how it's done right now because technology moves in five years a lot as well. So there might be things that are quite easy in two years that are impossible to do right now. And for the day-to-day delivery, we are actually uh, doing an agile thing where we actually have uh, uh, now four weeks break for every release of the browser and in those we actually have uh, they uh, have like uh, two sprints in one month so it's two weeks of sprint and every end of the month sprint is just a bug sprint where we just fix bugs so that's a great time for me to actually think about the next two or four sprints and uh, and plan ahead whereas like the day-to-day delivery is actually cut down into chunkable sizes and we're actually asked to put up scenarios that can be delivered in that sprint as well so we don't have these blue sky great ideas on the backlog all the time to be in the way of people. On the backlog, we got things that get delivered, get out of the way, so the next thing can come in. So that is actually really helpful to also see the progression of your product towards where you want to go. So, yeah, I guess that goes back to that five-year plan is like what is the ultimate goal in the next five years that we'll yeah. never reach, but at least we've got that sort of idea what's coming down the line. Yeah, and I mean, it could be just ideas like where do we want development in general to go? Like, where, what's the what's the what's the role of machine learning in for developers? Where where we actually we do like facial analysis, we do uh, audio audio captioning, we do all kind of stuff with that. But for developers, we're always like, uh, here's a command line from 1973, and this is what you guys want, right? And the main thing is like, no, it, we should be cleverer than that as well by now. And there's a lot of ideas that are coming down in that regard right now. I think. It's going to be interesting. Uh, there's a change in perception from developers, what I see, that a younger developer nowadays is totally happy to build a product based on five things they don't understand. They just use, whereas like in our case, like, okay, I use these 12 libraries with 15 NPM modules. Where are they coming from? Are they secure? Can I use them? And a lot of this is actually going away. And I think with uh, computing becoming more ubiquitous and technology becoming more obvious and connectivity being much faster everywhere, not only in the Western world, I think we're heading for an interesting market. At the same time, it was shocking to see how many people got caught by surprise by the uh, uh, by the pandemic, like moving from England to Germany and seeing how crap Germany is a digitalization of like schools and and government initiatives is just absolutely painful to see. I just had my vaccine, for example, and they gave me a printout with a URL this long that I should type (laughs) in to download a PDF, to print out the PDF, to fill it out by hand, to bring it back to the doctors to get my vaccine shot. And I'm like, why is that not an email? Oh, we're not, we can't get an email because, and that's the good thing, we're not allowed to get your email and record it because of security and privacy. And I'm like, 
that's great, but inconvenience not as good either. Like you could just still give me a QR code and they're like, a QR what? <laughs> so <laughs> what I found interesting in the whole pandemic is like how much we live in a bubble. And we thought that like just before it started, I was really down the machine learning and artificial intelligence path. And I was like, everything will be done for you by your computer in two weeks. And then like um, pandemic started and we realized like paper printouts are actually the only way that people understand and there's not enough mobile phones for everybody out there. There's not enough tablets and schools are woefully under understaffed and also under equipped for like digital uh, uh, experience. I feel bad for all the kids right now that couldn't go to school in the last year because uh, it didn't work the way they actually expected to. And I was always a protagonist of saying like, hey, this is great. Like let the kids learn at home, do online training. And like, but the social experiment of sitting next to each other in school is super important. Totally. I mean, I know you've not got children, but I've got two, and I know firsthand how badly prepared the schools were for what was going to happen, but also what could be done, because every school is slightly different. My, my two kids are at two different schools. My wife teaches at a separate one, and to see what my wife managed to enable in the lockdown, she built a, an online tutoring program with all the virtual mentors. She built an entire system around Teams, and I, I helped with some of the tech around the back of it as well. But it's, I don't know how Germany compares because I know a lot of UK schools just can't, don't know how to think like this. It's just not, they're not prepared for it. You know, they never got trained as well. The, the teachers oh. don't know how to use the equipment. They don't know how to deal with the security, uh, privacy and security of it as well. They're just basically overwhelmed. And I think it's also fun for a lot of uh, uh for a lot of people, they're basically like, yeah, well, we're going to teach our kids at home ourselves. And when I look at school materials, I just realized just how much I've forgotten and how much I have no connection to that. Like, I see this math problem, and I'm like, I use a computer for that. Why would I ever need this kind of thing? Like, nobody buys 50 melons. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's... It is very strange. Um, all this kind of leads well into the reason I invited you along, actually, was to talk about your online Skillshare course, um, about tool top tools to optimize your workflow as a developer. Can you tell us a bit about what prompted the actual content and, you know, what, you, what you're trying to achieve with it? Well, the thing is, I mean, whenever I work with Skillshare, they always ask me for two courses. They asked me for a long one and a short one. And the short one was this one. So they, I did a one about uh, accessibility and how to make sure that your product has uh, enough accessibility in it, how to use developer tools to test for accessibility. And then the second one was like, so what else affected your life in the last few months? And I'm like, well, it's the whole changing of the scene that all my engineers are actually working from home right now and all my my other program managers work from home as well. And a lot of them did that for the first time because, I mean, working for a large company with like a huge complex of buildings, they were just used to going to the office and just starting work there. And uh, out of a sudden, they didn't know how to deal with the freedom to be from home, to work from wherever, and they didn't know how to actually make sure that the infrastructure at home is is good enough to actually uh, set these same expectations we had from the office. A lot of people also have the problem that the mindset is not there. You go to the office, you start working, and you go home and you're home. Whereas like sitting next to a table uh, next to your bed and still being in work mode is something that is really tough to do. So I... I became very early on an, uh, an, an expert that people asked about this because I've been working from home for 10 years and I'm working on the go all the time, like from hotel rooms and planes. So I got used to that kind of mindset switching and what kind of technology to set up on my machine to make sure that actually is there. So in this course, I'm going through the basics of like, how do you make sure that 
doc, you, you'll be more effective as a developer while people are not sitting next to you. Like what's happening if that like a water cooler moment where when somebody just leaves your office and you, oh, I forgot about this, hang on, actually, is not possible. It, it deals with the idea of like version controlling everything, making sure that everything you do is available somewhere on the cloud for other people as well and to give them the right access for it. Because if somebody like me works in another time zone and people ask me to collaborate with a product at the end of their day in California, I get it next morning and it says you don't have access to that link. And that means 24 hours are wasted because I cannot work until six o'clock in the evening with that people are, when those people are actually waking up to give me access to that link. So you've got to make sure that everything you do can be used by other people in other locales, in other time zones. And that way you actually back yourself up uh, and you don't actually get these three o'clock in the morning uh, calls if people, if you could make that link available to people. The other thing is just setting up your environment, like have your headphones, have like a camera that you look into and uh, and uh, setting up your uh, your connectivity. I mean, I had the same thing when I started working before the pandemic at home. It was all good. The connectivity was good enough on my wireless. When everybody in the house started working as well, my, my wireless connectivity went to shreds. It was just absolutely awful. So I'm now having, uh, I bought like a 10 meter cat cable to connect to directly to the wire <laughs> to the wired connection again, which I haven't done since 2002, but uh, it's now stable, and I'm very happy that it is. So a lot of times you just go back to other ideas and simple tricks to make sure that you are effective in this. And in this course, I'm going through like how do you get yourself into the mindset, how do you set up your environments for collaboration, and most importantly, I found that with my engineers, when I'm at pro as a program manager, I'm meant to document what they're doing. I'm meant to get people excited, do like videos about it, do documentation about it, do presentations to upper management about it. But a lot of times, these are like local builds on people's computers that need 20,000 flags set up and like different versions of Chromium installed, and I can't do this because I don't have time for that. So uh, just teaching people how to do a screen cast of something and send and doing a voiceover just talking over it not as for not for production but for me to write the documentation and for me to write the the presentation about it without me having to interview them about it made us much more efficient so a lot of it is also like how do you set up your machine to record uh, uh, short videos of yourself explaining things how do you make sure meeting recordings are there for other people to go out there and how do you organize a meeting so people can contribute and uh, even later on when there are different time zones, something that uh, was a big thing. I'm very happy that Microsoft uh, uh, asked me to do that. We had an extra team at the beginning of the pandemic of like people that know how to do that, that did a lot of documentation and videos and intro videos for other people to do it as well, because uh, they realized this is going to be a longer plan. This is going to be for a year, so everybody has to get up to speed on it. So was it partly motivated from internal experiences with Microsoft and how you've observed other engineers struggle, but partly I've learned a load of these tricks and it's an easy way to share this and we can possibly go public with this rather than just being an internal evangelist thing? No, I think the, the, the Microsoft thing was also the... <sighs> It was not never meant to be an internal thing. They were just asking me because I've been doing right. it, and it, it was uh, it is to a degree uh, a very a thing for my own benefit as well because I, I I have a lot of frustration not getting the information that I need in the time where I could work on it. So I wanted to teach people uh, internally and also externally to make sure to to think about people in other time zones. I mean, you remember when we worked at Yahoo together? We 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 had a team in India, one in England, and one in America, and that's why we could. 
deliver something like Yahoo Answers, which now got shut down, uh, that quickly because basically we had people 24-7 working on it. And how we worked in these two-hour uh, uh, periods where we had handover and how we prepared our materials so the next person can hit the ground running so they're not actually having any questions about it was something that we learned back then even. And I think that's something that I carried in through yeah. that and made sure that we put into this kind of course as well. So it's, it's, it's a vast amount of experience that you just wanted to share and make sure everyone could find yeah. easily as well. It's a really good, interesting topic though, because like, you mentioned a point around even just the infrastructure at home, the fact you've plugged your laptop into your Ethernet now. I, I had similar problems with the kids when we're all work, trying to stream video at the same time. It's like, look, what can we do? But luckily, mesh networks, there was just grab a few nodes, get them set up around the house, and that pretty much solved everything. But I don't think people realize this tech's available because I was talking to people at work and they were going, oh, I'm in a nightmare. I've got everyone at home. I've got my wife next door and we can't even find a space to have a, two calls at the same time. It's, these are real problems, though, that need addressing and not, no one's really you know, addressing it. Well, we're also we're also super geeky. I mean, if you talk to the average uh, uh, Vodafone user or whatever other person, that they get their pre-installed router and like a cable and connect this, and hopefully it works. They never changed the password on it. They never looked at the admin interface of it. And I mean, oh my God! I mean, these admin interfaces—how atrocious are they? I mean, none of them resize to a different screen for starters because they don't have that meta tag in there, and that's like the 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 web interfaces that nobody ever maintains. These are like. 1993 and people just made them back then and believe it at that and it's just brutal how much of this infrastructure doesn't get updated as well like the um i mean the firmware and security possibilities there as well and security attack possibilities are quite scary as well and I think it's tough uh, because uh, people don't want to think about it. They, I mean, I've said that a few times in talks. People see the Internet as like plumbing by now. Mm. I open the tap and water comes out. I don't want to know where this water comes from. I'm, uh, I complain to an expert if it doesn't come out, and that's about it. And I think the Internet has become the same thing, which is ironic because I didn't have any cold water for the last week uh, for like eight hours a day. I never had a house before where you only had hot water, not cold water. So that was really bizarre, but... Now they fixed it as well. I guess if a building is from 1902, you can expect these kind of things to come. <laughs> Again, similar legacy problems that never get addressed, yeah. right? It's like how many houses and villages still don't have fiber because they've got a copper. They don't need to change it. Well, especially in America. I mean, Europe, we're still we're still lucky. And it's funny how the newer countries that came later to the, to the, to the market have a much better connectivity. Yeah. I mean, Romania is like 4G throughout, uh, like uh, not 4 gigabit throughout, not 4G mobile. It's just pretty bizarre how these countries that later came into the market got the newest bits whereas like upgrading the old infrastructure is kind of hard it is very strange i mean we talked a lot about the the motives and you know what you're trying to get from the content can you tell us a little bit about how you went about making this content as well because it's, it's not easy to make a video tutorial and i'm curious your process of how you went about this i'm very happy with and i mean uh, you have another question that you talked about me why skillshare and it feels weird to advertise that much but i think the model that they're doing which i now did with other part uh, with other people that i'm coaching or public speaking is doing uh, uh, i'm doing as well is i wrote an outline and said like here's the things that i want to cover 
And then the when the video videographer came to my house and basically we had a camera person here with an extra rig and extra lighting and this flat is basically three times the size of my bed so it was basically I even had a boom <laughs> mic and there's no space for it it's just bizarre how that how that worked out because normally I flew last time I did it I flew over to New York and they have like a whole studio there and what they do is they take the outline and then they have an interviewer there that asks you questions about the subject in each of those different sections. And then they uh, uh, then they cut the, cut together when you were the most coherent about it. So it was more like a stream of consciousness talking about the subject matter, instead of just having a script to follow. So uh, this was much much easier for me, and it's very convenient for me. It's a lot of work for the editors and for the people cutting it together uh, at the end. And you see some of the cuts are harsh, but they're actually much better than I would do with my own cutting. So I think in this case, partnering with somebody like that who actually approaches it like that was very easy to do. When I do own video courses, I basically give myself a, a script and I um, I have some course about this, but I can't remember where I actually did, said it. Oh yeah, it's in the in the new, new version of the developer advocacy book. What I learned as well is actually doing screencasts of the things that I want to do. And then doing my own voiceover over these screencasts because I found talking and typing things in and doing the screencasts at the same time, one of the three always fails. And it, it's normally not your fault. It's some connectivity issue or some notification popping in or Windows wanting to update halfway through your, your recording. And I, 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 what I start with when I do a screencast-based kind of course is I, I script the screencast. I say like, okay, you go there and you actually click this button to do that and you type in that and you do that, which is great because I can reuse that that transcript for documentation later on as well. Like half of the Edge developer documentation that you see right now was basically scripts for screen recordings. Then I do the screen recording just by having that script on one screen and clicking around the software in the other one. And then I put uh, then I do uh, then I put them together and then I just do a recording a screen recording over it. I kind of read out the script, but I also make it much more natural that way because there's nothing worse than just people sticking to a very very scripted kind of presentation. I always hate these like we're incredibly excited about these new opportunities that our product gives you, and you're like God, have you swallowed somebody from QVC at three in the morning? It's just <laughs> like uh, it's more like than going through the script and explaining like oh, I'm going over there and click on that and then you see that this happens and you only have time to do that when you don't do the clicking and I think that's mm. the, uh, the the learning how to get your audio and your video and your script as three different things together and then putting it together in software in like video editing software uh, is a very very important step that way then again I mean, it depends what you want to do. If you want to do a proper training course that's using the Lindas and these kind of in the, in the worlds, like the, the the more like educational things that's going through enterprise customers, fine. If you go to TikTok or you go to Twitch, people expect things to be live and go wrong all the time. I think it's more like I have a hard time talking about it because I don't understand it. Mm. I don't understand how you have like a Twitch recording of three and a half hours people talk about CSS Grid and people watch that and you're like, they can't watch the whole thing. They're going in and out, don't they? Like, and uh, and uh, when I did some live uh, presentations on these platforms, it completely freaked me out seeing people signing in and signing off and just uh, bringing in the same question 15 times. And I, 
I guess it's a different world. Uh, I just got approached by TikTok as well if I want to do something with them, and I have no idea what that's going to be. But the market is huge, so why not? You know, it's going to be interesting to see. And I mean, ByteDance directly uh, uh, contacted me, so I don't know what's, what they want from me. But again, it was through the Skillshare materials. They saw on Skillshare what I've been doing, and they're like, okay, cool. An interesting thing is uh, that there's a lot of predators in that market as well. Like, you know, I get daily emails about like two-year-old Skillshare courses. Oh, you can also upload that to our platform and we give you money for it. And I'm like, well, but Skillshare paid me to record this. This is, I mean, it's my content, copyright, but it's not my content to redistribute. So there's a lot of people who think like an education platform is just putting up videos from other people and uh, putting ads on it and making money with it. And that's kind of worrying how many people I have to say no to every week that think that's a viable business model, actually. If you need help with your side project, either for inspiration, support, or just general feedback, remember to join our On The Side community on Slack. There are a number of previous guests from the podcast in there, including Sam Hardacre, Mike Street, Dom Hodgson, and Mark Lismore. Pop on over to ontheside.network, which will take you straight through to registration, and I'll see you in there. I mean, it's fascinating insights to how what you went through to make that actually. And you mentioned TikTok a couple of times. I, I noticed um, Scott Hanselman's also doing like TikTok videos now. I think he's been yeah. there for a few months. Have you uh, you two had a bit of a rivalry going on to try and do something no. together? Or I, I mean, I, I, I like him. He's a, he's a great guy, but he just sure. jumps on anything new and 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 nails it. So uh, it's, it's interesting. It's really hard to to compete with him in this case. And he's been <laughs> doing his podcast for years as well. So he's been very much like 100% doing that. And yeah, I mean, I don't use TikTok. I don't have time in my day for it. So I'm not, I wasn't that excited about thinking about it. Otherwise, I would have started it as well. He's very good in like taking things on. I also feel like, I mean, maybe it's just a bias that I have that I'm like, I'm this old white dude that is on TikTok that feels weird where everything else is like <laughs> 14, 12, 13 year olds talking about things on there. So it kind of feels, I don't know, if people want it, I do it, uh, but I didn't start my YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is also a total mess uh, uh, either. So uh, the whole, like, the it's it's odd. I'm a writer and uh, uh, at, at heart, and I worked in radio. So audio to me is, like, something super intrusive. Like, when I hear audio, I want to concentrate 100% on it. And I learned by listening to things as well. And, uh, uh, for example, when I see, like, whatever, um, what's it called, class thing, you know, all the audio social platforms that come on right now, where just mm. people talk to each other. And I'm like, we called this phone yeah. calls. We had that before. You know, this is like, uh, and uh, I cannot be on a phone call and put the, put the phone to the side and not give give a crap about what people say in the next five minutes. It just feels like a very intrusive thing to me, but it seems to be a generational thing. I get from my niece and nephews, I get like WhatsApp messages that are just an audio recording of seven minutes. And I'm like, you know how much I charge for the hour, how much seven minutes of my time is worth during the day? Like, and it's like two minutes of information and i'm like if you want to have a call just call me and we can chat but don't make me listen to seven minutes of your waffling that's just bizarre there is a very strange generation shift though i think with with all tech not just in audio but i've noticed this myself even i think my mother-in-law sent me a voice message when she lives next door she could have just <laughs> could have shouted. Yeah, exactly. Just get the tele, you know, the old bean cans with a string would have done the job. 
Um, <laughs> but I think there's there's something in it, the fact that this new generation of engineers will probably tap into those new ways of living and lifestyles rather than learning. I mean, me and you, we come from a different generation, right? We, we, you, you say you like come from that radio background and writing background. I don't think people have the time and energy to do that anymore. They just want instant content, video content. And I just wonder how things are going to change over the next five, ten years and how we're going to engage with that generation. Well, I also wonder about the, the validity of it. Like, how do you validate the quality of it? How do you make sure this is not fake news? This is not some QAnon crap. This is like, how do you, how do you know? I mean, the, the seeing the, the YouTube, uh, how YouTube got gamed with videos for kids with like really outrageous material. And now every time you upload a video for YouTube, you have to say, no, it's not made for kids. Uh, and yeah. because of that, it's just a very like uh, um, automatically generated videos using ML with like different, uh, uh, um, like characters that are important right now and horrible and fascistic messages and all kind of stuff going on there. So I think the report that the the quality of that one is an interesting one as well. Maybe it's just an age thing. I mean, I, I remember when people said like, oh, when people didn't play electric guitar anymore, when everything was a synthesizer, that's the end of music. <laughs> and they proved them wrong because this was like a 20-year cycle and then like Nirvana came around and it was people playing guitars again. Like it's like, you know, Maybe it's something that people get tired of quickly as well, but I always feel like the the uh, the immediacy market, like the live streaming stuff, the long liftness of it is the interesting bit. Like, how long will it be around, or is it just a quick cash grab to make make it possible for people to make a lot of money with, like uh, showing off things? I love that uh, the legality of it. That when you're, for example, a YouTuber and you have sponsored content, you have to say that this is sponsored, that you're actually having these headphones because they paid you to have these headphones, which we don't have on television and not in movies. When you when you see the money that came in through movies, when they always say like, okay, uh, I'm a big movie buff, so that might take some time. Um, when you see like how much money did the movie made at the box office and how much money the movie made uh, in foreign markets, there's never anything in that equation how much that movie made with like product placement. And when you see like James Bond movies and they just obviously say like I'm driving past this BMW with like Budweiser bottles on top, you know that somebody paid for these two words, but you never see that. And that's always quite interesting when people say that piracy killed the, the film industry. You're like, well, maybe more transparency would have been interesting as well. <laughs> mm, totally, totally. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a lot about the um, you know the video you've created and all the work you've been through and the process you went through. Were there any serious challenges you kind of came across as you went into that process as well, and even finding the time to you know make it amongst your day job? Yeah, that was kind of tricky, and I took days off for it. Uh, I, I right. have to admit, and I mean, I think that's just a fair thing to your uh, to your employer. To if you're not an an advocate, a developer advocate, your company, and you do something on the side, I think that's your thing to do. I was also lucky to be able to reuse a lot of the stuff, use it, reuse a lot of the research that I had to do for that course inside materials inside the company, either for training purposes or for documentation purposes. So mm -hmm. that was also another thing where we were. were um, I mean, the employer was not against it at all they're actually most employers nowadays will be happy if you become successful somewhere publicly as an ex expert in working or in just setting up development environments that's great because it reflects great on your company as well unless you use other <laughs> competitors products and them or something but uh i think the the find the time was like yeah i took uh, i took days off to actually do it but then again with not being able to travel 
I guess we all had a lot of days accrued anyways now at least that get there. Very true. That's a shocking thing to compare with America and us in Europe, like how much we in work contracts in Europe by law, how many days off we're supposed to have and how many days off Americans supposed to have. And then you wonder, I mean, they have higher salaries, but that's kind of the reason as well. Is there a significant difference then between the US and the Europe? Oh yeah, definitely, and uh, right. uh, especially in the in the the, the salaries. But then again, mm. we also have like uh, uh, social health care, and we have like free schools and free universities that you have to pay a lot of money for in America. So of course, people have to pay, get paid more. But again, I was shocked to see how for, how forward thinking uh, Microsoft was in this. And I don't want to sound like a, a fanboy. It's just the very thing that I thought was incredible that we got an extra five days of uh, of free uh, uh, mental health care days because of the pandemic. But I said, right. like, we know you all have your kids at home. It's a much more cramped. It's much more problematic. So you get an extra few, a few uh, um, health days that you can take off when you need to. And I think that was like a very uh, a generous offer that a lot of companies should have thought about it. Then again, when I talk to my fiance, who's like a teacher, uh, um, health pedagogue, it's called basically working with people with mental uh, problems and also with like uh, disabilities. So she's working with people with schizophrenia, with like all kind of uh, anxiety issues and these kind of things. And she's just looking at me like with eyes like, wait, you work on a computer and you type in things to a machine. Uh, you, how do you need extra days off? Like, what's going on there? And I'm like, yeah, it is like, it feels weird that we already in the high-grossing market of income and uh, and convenience of work get all these extra benefits. But then again, somebody some time ago fought for these benefits, and it would be bad not to use them, and it would be bad not to actually take advantage of them either. So I think that's something that we always should consider, that like having the uh, the privilege we have in our market and we still have to keep our companies uh, uh, human and i think it's exactly. great if it comes automatically but it's also great if you start uh, uh, demanding this because we are in a system of power right now it's fascinating i mean there's a lot of comparisons to what we do now in azos as well we've, we've got a well-being day coming up on the end of the month they're just giving everyone the last friday of the month off to do what you want, mental health, well-being. But again, we're also doing surveys with the employees to find out what their problems are. And again, all this year is all about, I'm worried about going back to the office. I've adjusted to working from home now. How are we going to maintain this going forward? And so they are hearing that staff have changed in the way that they work and they've continued yeah. to deliver. You know, it's not like you've sat there doing nothing and struggle. We were lucky that we were enabled to do this stuff remotely. Um, but like like you, my wife's a teacher. She looks at me with glaring eyes, going, "What do you need a day off for? I'm a teacher in a secondary school for <laughs> never stop. I don't even get my holidays anymore because of lockdown." I know. I wish we could gift it you, yeah. but it's, unfortunately, it's not how it works. You know. I just hope that a lot of people got a lot more humble about what teachers really do, having their kids at home and having to deal with them 24-7. It's the that people are like used to having that freedom to work from home. And still, as you said, if, if the efficiency was the same, and I would argue that probably the efficiency was higher in some people as well, if they do the time uh, uh, changing that people are in different time zones and work on different times of the day on the project, if you use that to your advantage, you become much more effective as a company. I've been a big uh, believer in like working from home for quite mm. a while. And uh, it's good to see how many people are like, why exactly do you want us back in the office so you can micromanage us again and sit next to us? Or 
why is that a thing? I also liked how we uh, went about, like, uh, uh, for example, when the offices were empty. And, uh, I mean, in Microsoft, this is huge. We got, like, 72 buildings in Redmond, just us. And uh, uh, it was like, okay, how do we set up your home environment and, like, getting a proper office chair? So we got to get, like, a proper office chair. But people who work, who lived next to offices were basically said, like, you can come to the office and pick up a chair and take it home. And because we're not going to use it at the time, you're not coming to the office anyway, so you take the chair home and use it there. And uh, in the office, we got these ergonomic specialists coming around and looking at your workplace, if it's actually healthy to, to work that way. So we couldn't do this. So we actually made sure that people have an opportunity to, to work uh, in, in an environment that actually makes sense. Cool. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm glad they're doing that. Um, right, a couple more things. Uh, what are the plans for the future with the course content? Have you got other ideas in the works? There's, uh, they asked me to do something more July, uh, August yet. I don't know yet what that's going to be, but I think I'm going to be doing something more granular about the working together, like organizing meetings kind of thing, organizing meetings across different time zones and these kind of environments. That might be something to do. Um, and the maybe going more into detail about like how to document things, how to do, how to make your your uh, your code very documentable for other people and also promotable for other people. Going back into the evangelism thing, but I don't know what they're what they want yet. It's kind of bizarre. I also got a, a few other blog blog publishers asking me to to write for them, and then they send you an Excel sheet of what to write about, and it's all frameworks. Oh, really? You know, it's like, we want React, we want Vue, we want this, we want this. And I'm like, well, then ask somebody who uses it because that's not me. <laughs> but then, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting how some people have this long-term thinking about their educational content, like how do we get people to work better with each other? And others are like, we need some bang for the buck immediately, kind of like quick thing to document, uh, uh, to, to get like what's cool right now, where do you go with that? So I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I also have a lot of stuff coming up my way uh, in my job right now, so I don't know if I actually can do a lot more courses. But I also have a lot of uh, a lot of talented people working with me that I want to keep prodding and mentoring and coaching right now so they could do something in my stead as well and get some money out of it as well if they wanted to. So that's not a bad thing. So the... It's great when you're in a position where a lot of people want things from you and you can then triage them out to other people and they also trust your judgment that you actually give them somebody who actually can deliver the same level that you can. And, yeah, I mean, looking at the course now, I'm my own worst critic. I'm like, oh, God, why did I say that again kind of thing? But everybody does that. So that's uh, uh, there's no immediate plans to do some more out of that one, but I also the where I've been horrible in the past, the, the Skillshare platform is more like a class environment where you actually have to interact more with that and you have to promote the thing yourself and keep the promotion going. And I hate doing self-promotion of these things, so it's kind of tough to actually do that. But uh, we'll see how, how, how well it's actually received right now and if follow-up courses like that makes sense. That's cool. We'll make sure that they, the details are in the show notes so people can click through and try it out. So you get, yeah. I think it's a seven-day trial or 14-day trial with Skillshare. It's a seven-day trial uh, yep. and uh, the the, the first the introductory videos are always open and yep. uh, yeah and it's actually a good deal i mean the, the, the really materials good. the other track the other courses i've done there are incredible as well so it's, yeah i mean i did yours in a lunch hour it was, it was brilliant it's, it's half an hour really straightforward <laughs> yeah. to go through and some really nice little nuggets of information you can take away because i think cool. like you I, I i do a lot of this stuff anyway but the little details like, oh i like the way he's 
position the camera or whatever it was, you know, yeah. the way that he staggered his screen so you can actually see up rather than left to right and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But no, it's really good. And, and your final point about getting your people to contribute content is something I'm really keen to explore as an engineering manager now is rather than being the person to do it, delegate and trust and, and coach and mentor them to be able to do that. Because uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people are reluctant to come out of their shell and share what they know, but they mm -hmm. give them a, a platform of potential. They're actually really strong and good in that area. You just need a little bit of a, a nudge occasionally. Yeah, the big one was like giving uh, uh, giving lightning talks in the office, like yeah. allow people to give like a five minute talk, five minute discussion, five minute should we make this a best practice every Thursday before lunch, like we did in Yahoo back then. That yeah. actually got a lot of people out of their shell. I also now started uh, making the uh, the materials that I'm doing, like uh, documenting them heavily in notes, like a PowerPoint, for example giving like notes how to present that slide, giving notes to what, to what to point out in that screencast, and then actually giving it out to people for translation. Like uh, I'm, I'm very lucky that my team has like 22 nationalities in it. Wow. And uh, and a lot of them were like uh, and like oh my English is so bad and I'm like yeah but your Spanish is amazing how about we do uh, you do that presentation in Spanish and uh, we give it out to the Argentinian and to the Spanish and to the South American market and they're like yeah that's an idea so it's it's very exciting to see that kind of opportunities that you didn't have before. And yeah, when I moved back to Germany, I started doing things in German again, which is atrocious because they have <laughs> specialist terms for everything that I didn't know because I lived for 16 years in England. So I'm just beating around the bush when I want to say one specialist term that everybody uses here. It's quite yeah. hilarious to see. <laughs> what a shift. Um, last one for you then. Have you got any pro tips that you can just, one pro tip on how people can work better remotely? Uh, I think the biggest pro tip I have is two screens. And that sounds weird because it costs money and it's a thing, but it could be a shitty screen in the background, an uh, old CRT or like a, 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 an amber or a green screen from 1952. It doesn't matter. The main reason is that most uh, uh, conference call systems are great because you can actually see the presentation and you can see the chat maybe. But then uh, when you present something or when you code along with somebody doing a live sharing thing, there's not enough screen for that most of the time. So I'm normally using my computer here, my laptop, to do my presentation, uh, to do my coding and my what I want to show. And I use the second screen in the back where I actually look directly into the camera and have my chat system running to actually talk directly to people. So that yeah. way you're not really having this problem where your clickety-clacky keyboard is actually in the way of your presentation and you actually can go between the like, okay, now I'm listening and now I'm showing you something. Now I'm listening, now I'm showing you something. And a lot of chat systems, sadly enough, are still set up that you cannot see when people put up their hands when you're doing a full screen presentation so having one screen for a full screen presentation and the chat system for everything else is, is really really a great opportunity to uh, uh, to be more effective in meetings i completely vouch for that as well and, and to be fair you, you mentioned they're quite expensive you can get them really cheap and a lot of companies are actually subsidizing this at the moment i think microsoft you mentioned are doing this i know a lot of companies i've been through are doing the same and I think there's even a government initiative in the UK that helps give you tech and give you money back on home working facilities as well. So it's worth looking down that avenue. And a lot of companies don't need their offices right now, or now it's starting no. again. But in uh, during the lockdown, you were allowed to take your uh, your screens from the office home as well if you wanted to. So Sure. So good tip. I like it. Pro tip. 
from, <laughs> from Chris. Um, so we'll give you details for the Skillshare on the show notes. Um, how can people get hold of you and catch up and chat with you? Well, christianheimer.com is my blog. Uh, everything is linked there. It's CodePoint on Twitter is the easiest uh, uh, to get a quick hello. And yeah, it's chris at christianheimer.com as email, which is quite uh, interesting as well. Yeah. That was another another quick pro tip. You know, during lockdown, you always had to fill in papers when you went to some restaurant or something like that. They always ask you to sign that you were there. Yeah. I got myself a little rubber stamp with my uh, with my address, my telephone <laughs> number, and my email. And every time they gave me one of those things to fill out, I just went talk and went in because <laughs> my yeah. handwriting is unreadable. And this yeah. was basically a much much better way. And the facial expression of people seeing that every single time I did this, they were just like. Oh my God, I would have loved to think of that. <laughs> that was just a very simple way to fill out these things. I love yeah. it. That's a great tip. I love that. Brilliant. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. It's been wonderful to catch up with you and hear about your stories and everything. Um, we will be in touch again soon, I hope, and we can uh, catch up on the next lot of content that you get out there. Yeah, I also love the, the rest of the people that you already announced that you're recording right now. There's lots of interesting stuff coming your way in this podcast i really enjoyed that i appreciate that yeah we're trying to keep it variety so it's not just all about tech and all that we've got some meetups we've got some you know ux and even uh, recruitment side of things as well so it's, it's a real mix of stuff from what we do in our lives oh that's interesting good man yeah. appreciate you joining okay see you soon huge thanks to chris for joining me this week to talk about his home setup the skillshare training material and his plans for the future i hope you learned as much as i did from the chat let us know if you have any other suggestions or would like to find out more you can tweet Chris at CodePoet, that's C-O-D-E-P-O number eight on Twitter, or email Chris at ChrisHaleman.com. And remember to check out his Skillshare course. Link details are in the show notes. As for the podcast, we obviously love to hear your thoughts. Get in touch on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as at MakeLifeWorkPod. You can always email hello at MakeLifeWorkPodcast.com. And you can obviously visit the website makelifeworkpodcast.com for all the show notes and archives. And remember to rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. I'll be back next time with someone else to talk about balancing their side projects on the Make Life Work podcast. <laughs>